2: The reason the program works so well is because it's grassroots bottom-up. And I'm a big fan of grassroots bottom-up. If we can infiltrate that into the US government, I think we'd be in a great position. But how do we fix the pipeline in the profession? From a grassroots movement. And this is where myself and all of us, as folks in the profession, don't let another K-12 student go by without talking to them about the profession.
1: Welcome back to Context & Clarity, the place where authors, experts, and thought leaders come to have engaged conversations with entrepreneurial architects just like you. I'm Jeff Eccles, and every Tuesday afternoon on Context & Clarity Live, my co-host Katie Kangas and I, and our live audiences that are joining us from all across the internet, we all have a conversation with a special guest to search for clarity around the things that matter most to you, the architect, no matter what your context is. It's been a fun fall season so far, and if you've enjoyed our conversation so far about mentorship, about humor, about mindsets, and the practice of architecture, you're gonna love this one with Ryan McEnroe. Now, Ryan and I didn't warn Katie that we've known each other and worked together for years, so she was in for a little bit of a ride during our conversation about the future of architecture and the pipeline from grade school to the profession. Enjoy our conversation with Ryan McEnroe, architect, leader, mentor. Welcome to Context and Clarity Live, where every week we bring to you a live conversation, that's what we call it live, with a special guest who has something to say about the things that matter most to you, the architect, no matter what your context is. And we have a wide range of guests we have over the course of three years now to talk about everything from project management to invoicing to mindset to who knows what, maybe even leadership or pipeline. We might find out about that today. I am joined as usual by my co-host, Katie Kangas. Welcome, Katie.
3: Good to be here. Thanks,
1: Jeff. It's great to have you here. Mm -hmm. We're in different... Well, I'm in a different location today. We'll get into that in a minute, but I've known our guest for quite a while. I'm sure we'll get into some of that right now, but this is going to be a fun conversation today. I'll just leave it at that. This is going to be fun. Let me just introduce our guest. He is a leadership and mentorship expert. He recognizes that the pipeline to the profession of architecture might be broken or at least leaking maybe. He's a member of the AIA College of Fellows. I figured it was safer to say it that way. He's a co-founder of the Christopher Kelly Leadership Development Program and a senior associate at Quinn Evans. Ryan McEnroe, welcome to Context and Clarity Live. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Katie. Happy to be here. Good to see you. Glad that you're here. Glad that you're here. And we'll, you know give Katie a break. We won't take this too far (laughs) off the rails. (laughs) So Katie, you don't know this, but Ryan and I met, I don't know how many years ago now, because I was in charge of bringing leadership development, whatever that meant to AIA Indiana. I did a lot of searching, came across Christopher Kelly Leadership Development Program, which as I mentioned in the intro, Ryan is one of the co-founders of, and eventually we implemented CKLDP, It's a little bit shorter way of saying it, but not that much easier way of saying it. We implemented that in Indiana. And I'm happy to say, you know, I'll toot Ryan's horn for him, Christopher Kelly Leadership Development Program is a great program. I saw it sort of as, in a way, you know, coming from my charge and my point of view, sort of as leadership development, architecture leadership and development in a box because they have created this system, it's systematized Leadership development in a fantastic way that allowed it to propagate across the country. And I'm sure Ryan will speak to where all DKLDP is being implemented now, but it's spreading across the country. It's very successful in Indiana, where I usually am, where I'm not today. But so, first of all, thanks, Ryan. It's great to meet you all those years ago and great to work with you across all these years to bring more and better leadership development to the less experienced, I'll say, in our profession. So thanks for being here. Thanks for CKLDP. And I'm looking forward to jumping into uh, Wild and Wooly Ride here today. Great, great. And thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. When we were in the green room, or before we got started, we talked about the fact, and, and this is personal to me too, because I dabble in educating undergrads and graduate students. But we talked about the fact that there's a pipeline problem, a pipeline to the profession problem, and you brought up this idea of sort of non-traditional routes. Should we start with what did the traditional route to architecture, what did it used to be before we even talk about what it is now, or if there's even a way to wrangle what it is now?
2: Sure, and I think AIA, and carve the NAB, They all kind of talk about well, the traditional path towards architecture. I've been involved as volunteers and leaders in each of those organizations. And I've kind of said, well, the traditional route is, you know, you get your degree, Mm -hmm. whether it's a five-year BARC or a four plus two traditional undergrad and master's degree, and you come out and you get your license in due time. Mm -hmm. You know, let's not let it linger. And with that, I think that, you know, starts to define the traditional path towards architecture. And you say that somebody coming out of high school knows that they want to be an architect. Let's start there. Yeah.
1: And I think that, you know, again, as we were talking beforehand, I mean, Katie has a story about her experience with architecture. You have one. I mean, my story is very similar and I want everybody to share theirs. But I don't think I met an architect before I went to architecture school. I was familiar with Mike Brady. I don't know what else. I did have the advantage, so to speak, of living sort of the second half of my growing up. After my dad was transferred to Chicago, I was surrounded by Frank Lloyd Wright. And I had a mom or have a mom that's a lifelong learner. And she took us to all of the things, but all of the Frank Lloyd Wright properties, I guess, Frank Lloyd Wright design properties. So that was a huge influence on me. But a lot of people are not exposed to architecture maybe with a big a not an architect as you know a professional so how do we even get there how are we inspired to get into school or into that pipeline i guess as we're calling it at this point
2: yeah and so i'll comment here i'll paraphrase because i'm sure she said it a lot better than i did but michelle obama right after barack's term had come to a conclusion it was that following summer at conference at the aia conference michelle obama was a speaker and one piece that really struck a chord with me was how do you know you want to be an architect if you've never known one mm-hmm. and she was specifically speaking to the black community and those underserved and how they don't even know it exists as a profession and then you lump in engineering and construction it's the whole AEC, but specifically architecture. Like, how do you know you want to be one if you don't know anybody? Mm -hmm. My aunt, my uncle, my cousin, nobody in my family, how am I supposed to know that that's what I want to be? And that is certainly a particular layer of the profession that, from a diversity standpoint, that I think has a lot of attention, rightly so. We've been serving, I think the industry, NOMA knows the numbers really well, but I think for the past 50 years, it's been 2% of licensed architects are people of color, which is just like, How has that not changed? Mm -hmm. And I think the profession, myself included, it's like that's not a representation of our society. And I think that's why there's so much urge to change it, to change it for the better, so that we actually represent people, the clients, the communities that we have in our society. There's no magic number out there. I think the magic number is that you as a firm should be practicing and look like the society in which you serve. Mm. So if you're a small shop in the Dakotas, then that's one look. And if you're a big firm in New York City, that's another look. But I think the point is that there's the correct mix of people in the profession that are actually you know, working and serving society. And this gets to pipeline. So it gets to understanding as a high school student or before that, that this is what I want to do the rest of my life. I think that the AIA and NCARB and NAB, specifically ACSA for that matter, we can group them in as well. NOMA, they've done a really good job addressing students once they're in the profession, once they're in a NAB accredited program in giving them support and finding barriers towards licensure. And there's a lot of we're going to need more hours. There's a lot of challenges with that too, but I feel like that's at least been addressed firm by firm, region by region. We're starting to see better progress there. The pipeline, however, really hasn't been addressed. I think there's been a lot of talk about we as a profession need to get into K-12 through and we need to inform K-12 through on what the profession is. And there's great programs, the ACE Mentorship Program, Architecture, construction, engineering, mentorship program. There's architecture in the schools, some name a different spin off of it. It's what we have here in Washington, D.C., through the AIA or some other nonprofit that gets architects into the curriculum three, four, five times a semester. You know, it's Tuesdays, every other Tuesday with the architect or something of that nature. And you run a class, and it's third grade and fourth grade and sixth grade and, you know, into the high school classes to just do fun, creative craft exercises with them. But letting them know that architecture even exists. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great step. And I commend the volunteers that do that work. I don't think it's enough. The problem is that it's just too few and far in between. And this isn't just about ethnic diversity. I think this goes beyond. It gets into gender and religion and age experience. You know, when you look at diversity of our society, it's more than just the color of one's skin. And so my experience, I grew up on a farm in upstate New York. My dad's a farmer. My mom's a teacher. I got four brothers. We knew how to work. We were dairy farm turned into an organic farm. We just, that was our desire that's what we knew what to do was just to work and when i said i wanted to be an architect it kind of hit my parents a little out of left field like where the heck's this coming from well it came from a mentor and who was that mentor that mentor was john rockanova my high school shop teacher we were in such a small school this is rural upstate new york such a small public school that you know high school was also middle school it was all together and so i had the same shop teacher from seven through twelve I think you only have to take two shop classes from a requirement. At the time, anyhow, I had him every semester. We just connected. And he didn't connect with everybody. He'll admit that. But from a mentorship standpoint, we were able to connect. So I found the profession through the act of building and modeling and craft. And the mortise and tenon joint. And once a plan kind of came up into section and became three-dimensional, I was like, I'm in love. He didn't know one thing or another about the profession though. And so he just tried to make connections. He tried to figure out like how to apply. You guys would laugh at my first portfolio. I mean, it was a joke for any kind of admissions into a nav accredited degree, but it was the best I could do. I literally my grandmother pronounced it architecture. She could not pronounce the profession. Like we had one architect in town that served the weekenders and those that could afford an addition. There was no reason to have more than one architect in town. And there is no reason to have staff for said architect. <laughs> like, and things have changed a little bit since then, but I mean, I'm trying to paint the picture here so that there's different levels of like, you know, finding the profession, right? And so that's how I found the profession, but I had no idea about accreditation. I had no idea about licensure. I had no idea about the financial strain that it would have. I had no idea about the financial opportunities that it would have. So I happen to find it, and I'm saying this as, you know, predominant part of our culture as a white male, like I happen to find it without too many roadblocks, but not in the smoothest path forward. I mean, my non-traditional path was to get an associate's degree, two years, transfer, get a bachelor's degree. Thanks, but you lose a year. Do I really want to go to grad school? Is this really what I want to do the rest of my life? Yes, I'm all in. Now I go to grad school. I had nine years of professional education before it was all said and done. So I found my path, and I'm really happy with the decisions I've made. And it's always easier to look back and say, what could I have done differently? But you know, one side of me says I wouldn't change anything because I would have never met Jeff. And what would I have done in my life if I'd never met Jeff? But another part of me is like...
1: Valid question.
2: <laughs> it's a very valid question. But another part of me is like, oh, if I could have just looked at the financials, I would have taken this path. Mm-hmm. Or if I could have just looked at you know, the career end goals and you know how much money I might make, I may have taken a different path. And so I'm very thankful for the path that I have had, but I feel like being informed would have let me make some decisions instead of having them just fall in my plate. Katie, I know you mentioned that
1: you had met maybe one architect before you went to grad school.
3: I did. So I was able to shadow the architect who was designing my uncle's house, which was a mansion. But my exposure actually came from my uncle and my papa, my grandpa, who built over 100 houses together and being able to walk those houses and Prevoke Woods was great in high school and architectural drafting in high school was where it Mm -hmm. all fell together. I'm like, if I can hand draw for the rest of my life, that'd be great. And the architect I shadowed for a couple hours one day in seventh grade, she hand drew everything. And she had one other woman working for her who was her CAD, did AutoCAD. So it was so fun to walk a project with her. And then I was just set. I'm like, okay, I'll just do this. But yeah. You just get that idea in mind, but it's hard to imagine what barriers people face. So have Mm -hmm. you talked with folks about that, Ryan, about it is a long path. And along that path, I had seven and a half, eight years of education because my mom was insistent that I would change my mind. So she's like, go get a liberal arts degree in art. And I chose art and art history because I saw a path through a local university to do a three-plus program. And so that was my slow and steady path, but I took slow steps towards it. And I imagined a lot of different careers along the way, but architecture was always where it's at. Yeah. And I think that sort of, how do you talk about that kind of visionary career choice that you have to have that long vision? It's not going to pay off for a while, but if you're willing to put the legwork in, It's gonna be there for you.
2: Yeah. You know, so one of the barriers that I think still is very much a part of the profession is licensure. But you know, before you even get to there is like getting into school and figuring out which school to go to. And I know that there's a lot of resources out there for that. Well, at least more I'm aware of those resources now I wasn't at the time. So any opportunity I get with a high school student, and we host a lot of students at Quinn Evans, both architecture students that are working towards internship and AXP hours, as well as just folks that are interested in the profession. And I'll take them aside, and we'll go have coffee or a hot chocolate, because they don't even like drink coffee yet. And we'll talk about just like, these are the things I wish I knew. I only got you for 60 minutes. These are the things I wish I knew. I wish I knew the difference in whether or not it mattered between an M-Arc and a B-Arc. And what is accreditation? And I'll loosely put that in if you're ever gonna practice in academia, you should have an MARC. But if you really already know that you just want to be licensed, a B arc is more than enough. Like you can go do that. It's not that one's better than the other. And I think maybe even like a decade or 20 years ago, like it really was like frowned upon to have a B arc. I'm glad that it didn't like stick because it's clear that there's a reason for it in the profession. You talk about equity and just having more than one pathway like that's a great opportunity to have more than one pathway the other of course is licensure and the hurdles towards licensure and whether or not a firm is going to support their staff in time off and paying for the exams and study material and just getting over that hurdle you combine the two together and you got ncarb's ipal program right where you know even when schools are thinking about starting an accredited degree where I'll dabble with the volunteering with NAB, and I'm like, have you considered an IPAL program? I'm not saying IPAL is right for everybody. But if you're a program that's focused on graduating students that are ready to work in the profession, IPAL might be a pretty good opportunity for the integrated path towards licensure.
3: Is that what IPAL stands for?
2: It is. IPAL is Integrated Path Towards Architectural License. Okay. And and NCARB's got a website for it. At this point, I think it's probably been around for six or seven years now.
3: The school I'm doing a studio at this semester, they have that sort of program. They're one of the
2: ones. Yeah, it's usually like one or two students. And it's not that every student that graduates from that program needs to go through the IPAL program. It's usually one or two Mm -hmm. students a year, at least the programs that I'm familiar with. But it's it's kind of taken the co-op program that so many schools have had for a long time where they integrate experience through their education and it just formalizes it a little bit more and has state approval so you can take your exams before you technically have your degree. Yeah. So I teach at Ball State and we have IPAL.
1: You know, I'm not plugged in with IPAL, that's not part of my curriculum, so I don't know how many students are actually enrolled in that program, but it is a relatively small number. There are some that are successful in graduating through that, but it's a lot, right? You're adding a lot on top of... It's rigorous. Yeah, yeah. And I believe it's only our MARC students that are going through Yeah. Through iPal because you'd have to have a relatively significant amount of experience in order to check all of the boxes, right, to, uh, to be able to do that.
2: And so this is my issue with iPal. You got to know 18, you're out of high school, I want to be an architect. Mm -hmm. And so that you can start that process. And I think it's great for those that do know. But for those that don't know, it's just that much later that you're able to, you know, finally get engaged. And you think about the three plus programs or those non-traditional students that we all went to school with at this point that went and got a bachelor's degree in something, Mm -hmm. anything. And then said, actually, no, I want to do architecture. And they come in to a master's program to get their MArch, And it's this intense, you know, three plus years of education. And they're as like sought after as anybody else in the profession at this point, because they're not just like pigeonholed into like, I am architect. It's like, no, there are people in society that we need to be <laughs> designing for, right? Like, I am robot that can operate the Revit machine. Like, they come to the profession in such a different way perspective that i think is like critical to the success of the profession and so again it's a great opportunity it's a great avenue for quote-unquote non-traditional students someone who isn't 18 and decides what they want to do with the rest of their life i mean i'd say it jokingly but it's who the heck knows what they want to do when they're 18 yeah so i think for programs to be able to offer that as an avenue towards licensure because ultimately you know first you got to have a degree and then towards licensure and great if you can loop it all together with ipal i think these programs also tend to support folks that have already been working so even if they do have a Mm -hmm. bachelor's degree in architecture engineering what have you and they're just working Mm -hmm. and then they're like well i got family i got income i got debt i still want to get my degree but i feel like i'm late and so here's an opportunity for those to still be part of the profession and be a meaningful part of the profession, to have a really good voice in their profession.
3: Towards the age gap, who's the oldest person you've known to go through and get their license? Just so people know when it's not too late.
2: The oldest person that I know, he probably got his license when he was 52. Yeah. Early 50s. Yeah. I don't know... I feel like he got his degree earlier on, and he just took a long time to get his license. Not unheard of. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are doing it in their 40s still. Mm-hmm. But NCARB just came out with some numbers. I just got like flooded with NCARB emails last week. But they were like emails I actually opened for a change. <laughs> <I> don't <laughs> tell NCARB. <laughs> but they had a lot of their reports that they were commenting on. And I think it's common to hear that people kind of have biases towards... Folks that aren't passing their exams, and you know, it's like, oh, what's taking them so long? But one of the big biases is actually for age and not having passed your exam. You know, how they do all these surveys all the time, right? So yeah. they survey whoever answers them, but they came back with like a surprising fact that there's a big age bias that if you're not licensed and you're past a certain age, I don't know what age it is, that there's a bias in the workforce that I don't know you're not smart enough or capable or some, I mean, I know that there's people that are more than capable of doing my job that don't have their license.
3: There's award-winning architects in Minnesota who can never be licensed architects in this state because of what path they took towards licensure. And so some of them are trying to tell their story and bring awareness to that fact, but that's a state by state issue as well.
0: Attention architects and creative minds. Get ready to supercharge your brand with Build Your Brand, the podcast that's unlocking the secrets of branding success for creatives. Hey there, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my friend, architect marketing expert, Jeff Eccles at Build Your Brand Podcast, where he explores the captivating stories of the world's top brands and transforms their lessons into powerful moves for small firm architects and creatives like you. In season one, Jeff shares the thrilling tale of Southwest Airlines, where he dissects their journey to the summit and distills it into strategies tailor-made
1: for you. It's important to keep in mind that companies like Southwest compete in the real world, just like you, and face real world challenges, just like you. You might be surprised at how similar those challenges are to the struggles that you grapple with on a day-to-day basis.
0: Don't miss out on your blueprint for success, subscribe, tune in, and let's build your brand together.
1: You may have noticed that the very best brands in the world are also known for having somewhat unique corporate cultures. That's often the glue that holds everything together when they encounter those rough spots. We don't do it because it inconveniences the passengers to whom we are primarily dedicated, the short haul uh, frequent flyer.
0: Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to build your brand today. Remember, no matter the size, the journey's the same. Your brand's journey to the top starts here.
1: Yeah, well, let's just blow it up, right? So, you know, that's a really interesting fact, Katie. And I know there are people in the Entree Architect community that not in Minnesota, that have the exact same situation. And something you just said, Ryan, about you know someone that's older than you that's not licensed or as talented, I forget exactly how you said it, mm-hmm. but they're not licensed, but they could do your job. So here's a question. And as someone who teaches classes in the university and is a professional pot stirrer, I have people cringe at this statement a lot or this question a lot, does everyone in the profession, does everyone that goes to architecture school need to be licensed as a profession? Sure. You know, and we can set this up. You walk into the doctor's office, right? That's the age-old argument, right? Yep. Does everybody need to be licensed?
2: Yeah.
3: Hmm.
2: So I'm going to answer this twofold because it's like, in DC, it's always politics season. So as a true politician. (laughs) 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 As someone that's effed. <laughs> so I feel like it's both but this is why so I do not feel that everyone who graduates from an architecture degree needs to be licensed mm-hmm. I don't feel academics need to be licensed I serve on more than enough nav visits to know that that could be a bad thing if all academics are actually licensed True. and the degree I think is such a broad degree whether it's accredited or not mm-hmm. that it sets you up for a really good foundation to just be a Good problem solver. Yeah, sure. I do feel that anyone working in the profession, it should be licensed. Okay. I also do feel that there's a huge roadblock allowing that to happen. Mm-hmm. I don't think it should take even the average, whatever NCARB says it is now, three, four, five, six years after graduation that someone's licensed average. I think it should be more along the lines of law, medical, that you come out of school you do your bar, you do your residency, you're licensed. Mm. It's shortly thereafter that you are licensed. And I know other countries handle it differently just because you graduate, you're now licensed. And maybe that's a solution, maybe it's not. But iPAL might be a way to get us there, but I don't think iPAL is right for everybody. Because there's half the students that we go to school with that end up, I say half, someone can correct me on the actual number, but... Not everybody that graduates from an architecture program goes into the profession to practice architecture. And I think that's okay.
3: So back to the leaky pipe in the pipeline. Mm -hmm. I've actually seen it as kind of a good thing, that there's people who find a value in architecture who are infiltrating other fields with this mindset, with this training, and that generationally, as they grow in their leadership positions in these adjacent industries, in these adjacent materials, companies... All these other things that they are growing in that leadership sense with this value of architecture, whether or not they themselves became architects.
2: Yep. I fully support the leaky pipe. Not in my house. I hate them. (laughs) I'm dealing with them. (laughs) But the leaky pipe, and I'm going to pick on a good friend of mine in just a hot minute here on why the leaky pipe is really important for policy. I do think there's a challenge that we still have in filling the pipeline, Mm. in letting All of society know that the practice of architecture exists. The leaky pipe is great. We want people who understand what architecture is to be our clients. We want them to be on the developer side. We want them to be on the contractor side. We want them to be on the public sector side. We want them to be advocates for good design and important design. And you learn all that in school. You learn the importance of designing for community. So whether or not you go and get your license or not... I think we want people educated in architecture in society. Leaky Pike example, Jacob Day. I now have to call him Secretary Jacob Day, but never to his face. <laughs> he was a classmate of mine. We went through AIS together. He was AIS president in 0405 when I was a national quad director, graduated University of Maryland. He went on and, I don't know, he got like three or four different master's degrees, and he's in the Army And he starts to build his resume towards policy and politics. He becomes mayor of Salisbury. He does a great job as mayor of Salisbury. He's now the secretary of housing for the state of Maryland. And it's a great success story on why the leaky pipe works. (laughs) Like, Wouldn't you want the secretary of housing in your state to be someone who's trained in architecture? I'm pretty happy with it as a resident of the state of Maryland. I feel like he can make more informed decisions as someone who understands policies and practices that go into good design. And he's knowledgeable enough to know if something that's put on the table is, you know, worthwhile or not. And at this point he's kind of dealt with enough of the politics behind things and the red tape that he understands where some of those sticky situations are. But you can't pull a quick one by him because he's too informed in that sense. So, and you can multiply that you know, 10 times over, right? Like to have architects to advocate on your church board when you have a renovation going on, someone who's at least been educated or trained in architecture to be talking about future development of your community.
1: Yeah, I think I would agree with
2: the leaky
1: pipe theory. That's our new theory here. You know, where I am in this moment in time in my career my focus is built environment, so it's it's not just architecture, it's everything. That's the summit, this conference that I'm at right now. I'm gonna emcee the next few days. And so in my world right now, there's this intense focus on innovation and changing how we work and you know all these different aspects of quote unquote built environments. So it's broader than the architecture office per se. And so yeah, there's absolutely, we need lots of leaky pipe you know, the incubator cohort that I'm running right now, I think all of the startup founders, but one have a background in architecture, and they're developing software and they're developing all these different solutions that impact the profession and beyond. I think one of the reasons to ask the question about licensure is also accessibility. Again, I think the example that's almost always pointed to is the doctor's office. I go to the doctor's office and I encounter 12 people from the time I walk in the door to the time I walk out of the door, and only one of them is a licensed doctor, right? That's an actual MD. Mm -hmm. We have nurse practitioners and radiologists and whatever all those roles are. And so, you know, that's often equated to the profession of architecture. Well, you've got people that are doing Revit and you've got people that are writing specifications and you've got people, you know, whatever and whatever and whatever and whatever. So so then the question is, well, and I asked my undergrads this last semester, I haven't asked this semester yet, but, you know, what do you want to do? And very few of them, and this actually surprised me a little bit, it's like 75% of them, We're not that interested in the traditional role of architecture. What are you interested in, right? And some of them building envelope designs, and a lot of them have mad digital skills, so that, you know, renderings and, you know, the other visualization tools and things like that. And again, they're undergrads, right? They're four years into their education, so they're still figuring it out. I guess I would argue that many of us are still figuring it out
3: Absolutely, a whole
1: lot of years after we've graduated, but I was surprised at how they're looking at niches and how they're looking at these different specific roles that are within the profession, you know, even in the offices, Mm -hmm. in an architecture office many times, but not as interested in whatever a traditional role of architecture is. I guess maybe I should ask that question too, is what is a traditional architecture role? but does it does it make sense to walk into an architecture office and say hey like when i worked at large firms there's one person in the office stamping plans right there's only we can get into risk management and all that right but there's one person stamping so does everybody in the office really need to be licensed or is there an opportunity for somebody that has an interest in construction that says hey i can work on the ca side or i can right, specifications or whatever without having to go through the licensure process, take on debt, et cetera. I mean, you know, it's a big ball as you've already identified, but that's why I think that one of the reasons I think that question is important because it's is it an issue of access to the profession, understanding limitations, mm-hmm. but can we get to the profession without having to, you know, Erica's talking about, and Scott also, right, b in 1990. I look at students now having one in college and one that's headed to college that are going to places that cost $72,000 a year. For what, right? If I go to a school and pay $72,000 a year and I graduate with a B-Arc or an m right, the numbers, that's a quarter of a million dollars. Quick math, what's Quinn Evans gonna pay me? Right. How do I ever pay off a quarter of a million dollars, let alone time for studying, et cetera? Yeah. Obviously, there's a lot of questions. (laughs) I don't even know what the question is. But
2: I think part of this, and I'm reading Erica's comment here as well, I feel that part of this gets to the question of licensure. And why was I so abrupt to say that I think that everybody in the profession, once you're practicing in the profession, should have a license? I don't think it's the person that's actually stamping the drawings. I don't know how that ever changes. I mean, I feel like every office does it a little bit differently. We do it where all principals in charge stamp. So it's not one person, but yeah. it's the principal in charge. But it's still like, it still takes you years to get to that position. Mm-hmm. They actually at least oversee the work, which I feel better about than other offices I've been in where it's like, who are you? But you're stamping this. okay? Yeah, yeah. So the reason I feel that you should be licensed is so that I feel that it shouldn't be what is currently the hurdle to get to licensure. So let me kind of back that off because I think that there from an equity standpoint from a cost of education and getting to that point you start to very quickly limit mm-hmm. who in society you're going to be able to reach right yeah definitely so i think it's important because when we're put in front of clients and community that we can show that we are a professional doing this work yeah and you can call upon us because we are we are qualified to do this work mm-hmm. So that's where I come from that in smaller firms and Katie, you can probably speak to this, but my experience in smaller firms like that is where I would say is you're doing little bits of everything, both project types as well as like what you're doing on a project. You're doing the bathroom details, you're doing the sections, the specs, you're doing it all. You're doing the marketing and, once you get into larger firms, you start to become specialized in pieces. Mm-hmm. And you know, you're the envelope person or you're the masonry or on the site person. And so I start to address site comments. And as you do that, you learn more and you develop more of that skill set. Mm-hmm. Don't ask me to put a window detail together. My buildings are gonna leak. <laughs> I'll admit it. My colleagues got that covered. Very
1: frankly <laughs>
2: <nice>. <laughs> So But I'm not going to be asked to look at those specs in any great detail. And I'm not going to be asked to look at those details in any great detail. My colleagues have that covered. But when it comes to the site and the civil and geothermal and that type of coordination, then I have it covered. And I feel very capable and competent in that regards. So I think because of the specialty, that's where there's opportunities for professional advancement. Like Mm -hmm. you talk about being 18. You want to be a spec writer the rest of your life? (laughs) Like, who the what is spec writing? (laughs) You know, or like, or do you want to do contracts the rest of your life? Do you want to do contracts for an architecture firm? Like, where is this at the career fair? Right. And so I think these are positions that people fall into because one, they've developed a specialty towards it, and two, Mm -hmm. they have interest in it. Personally, I have developed interest and a Bit of a rapport and contracts and negotiate. I never, who the heck? Ha- I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but like I know just enough to, I don't even want to say like be lethal, but like, you know, I know just enough to like have a good position at the table. And at this point, I've had enough experience where it's not my first time, where you just feel like Bambi on ice your first time. You're just like, I don't feel comfortable at all. And then you get into it a few times. Well, guess what? Every small firm owner does their contracts, right? Like they, Katie does her own contracts. I'm sure of it, right? Like you have to. You get into a big firm, you don't have to do contracts anymore, because that's somebody else's job. And so, there's specs is another prime example. Like, when did we even develop spec writers? But there are like certain firms that do a really good job with spec writing, mm-hmm. but they don't know much about the project because they're not actually working on it and they like interview you to learn about the project and then they write a really good spec that holds up in the court of law and covers you during CA. So there's a benefit to that and again this is where I'm saying like from a professional standpoint I feel like that it's important to be able to say like no I'm a qualified person that should be doing this work as opposed to someone who might just be interested, you know, someone that doesn't have any education and only has experience. There's ways to get there. And NCAR continues to support that, but it's a a much bigger loops to have to jump through to just show it through experience.
3: Yeah, it's like swimming in an ocean though. Once you get past the name architecture, like you learn about all of these things. And we talk about that K through 12 pipeline that we started with. It's so hard to communicate that. So just like meeting one architect that doesn't represent even like 1% of what architects do when you only meet one person, if they describe their day-to-day, it's so challenging to explain it. I feel like engineers have done a bit better of a job. There's some great personalities on YouTube like Mark Grober and Smarter Every Day who are like former NASA engineers now making it accessible to children. And they're engaging them in that problem solving that I think is really elevating engineering a lot. There's the whole STEAM and STEM mm-hmm. movement that architects missed out on somehow. <laughs> but I think we like for going back to that K through 12, like that start of the pipeline. What are some thoughts or ideas about how each of us can be kind of growing the profession or growing awareness at this young age?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Great. You've recognized the problem. How do you fix it? <laughs> so right? and I don't know if this is the solution, but I think it's part of the solution. And maybe this is how Jeff, I'll tie it back to Christopher Kelly. So, the reason that the Christopher Kelly Leadership Development Program, in my humble opinion, is so successful, it's now got 12 chapters throughout the country. For those of you on the West Coast, Silicon Valley's applications are currently open AIA. There's over 800 alumni over 10 years now. And like this is leadership development for young architects, emerging professionals to just learn the basics about firm leadership and institute professional leadership and civic and community leadership just like the 101 how to be a good leader we all have it in us the reason it's successful is because it's a grassroots movement ai national again a couple weeks ago ryan would you be interested in making this an ai national program no because then it's going to cost three times as much i say it jokingly but it's probably true and it's going to come down from this like mothership approach and it's going to be forced And in three years, it's not going to be a program anymore. The reason the program works so well is because it's grassroots bottom-up. And I'm a big fan of grassroots bottom-up. If we can infiltrate that into the U.S. government, I think we'd be in a great position. But how do we fix the pipeline in the profession? From a grassroots movement. And this is where myself and all of us as folks in the profession don't let another K-12 through student go by without talking to them about the profession. It can be 30 seconds. Have you thought about architecture? At my wife's cousin's family reunion thing that we did in Florida, the son of one of them thought about engineering. So we were shooting hoops. He was shooting a lot better than I was out in the park, talking to him about the profession. He was really interested in one school because that's where his parents went. So said, there's more than one school. We had a conversation about it. You know. He's since reached back out and asked for more information. He wanted to go into engineering. And I'm not saying you gotta go into architecture. And I don't know that he will, but he at least now is informed that architecture even exists. Cause he just thought engineering was what gets things built. And his reason was because it was gonna, you know, make financial matters that much better. And I was like, well, maybe and maybe not. Like you can make a living, but don't do it for that reason because you're not gonna enjoy the rest of your life if that's the only reason you're doing it. So I think if each of us can talk to those students and you know, and it certainly creeps into college students as well, but I think particularly the K through 12 students open our doors for shadow days for shadow weeks. And I have all people know like how much time goes into hosting those people. Like it's not, let me just swing it and make it happen to make it an enjoyable experience. And who can I pawn this off on? But maybe you can pawn it off on somebody else in your office. But at least like give them an hour. Because in 30 to 60 minutes, you can get a lot out that just gives them enough crumbles to follow. I wish I had 30 to 60 minutes of somebody telling me about accreditation and telling me about licensure at the very least. I learned about what an architect did. I had a shadow day as well, Katie, similar experience, but it was so like, oh, every day is different. Yeah. And I just wish that instead of the every day is different on a job site for some rich person's third home, that it could have been 30 minutes just talking about, here's some resources to look into.
3: I think I've loved what our architecture and schools committee has done locally, like being available to do things for Girl Scout or Boy Scout troops. And they have an activity of, here's something you can build in cardboard. I know my own kids, when we moved, I gave them just like 10 boxes and they built something. And maybe scissors too early. But (laughs) it's fun to just give them space to create and explore. But I also see it in schools and at county fairs. If your AIA component has a fair at a county booth, it's a great way to like bring models or bring something to reach different parts of the population and, and grow that awareness.
1: Yeah, it's a great idea. Yeah. I think that grassroots comment is right on. There will be some that will watch this, maybe we're watching now, maybe you are watching or listening later that will complain about AIA. And this is not an AIA commercial, nor is it AIA bashing, but that isn't going to do it, right? You think about... K-12, take middle schoolers, just you know, cut it right in the middle go, we're going to talk to middle schoolers. How many middle schoolers want to hear from a big organization about anything? Not a single one, right? They're going to run the other direction. And it's just like, and I hear this comment fairly often, oh, AIA ought to be doing more to talk about the value of architects. And I've heard people say, oh, AIA ought to be putting together case studies that I can use for my marketing. And This is a tangent, but seriously, you want to give a potential client a case study that's put together by a national organization instead of one that's your own project and your own client, that isn't going to work. That's not what you want at all. You have to take responsibility for your work and your marketing and your clients. And that's different. But I think also when it comes to taking the message, we've done a horrible job as a profession of telling the story. It's a complicated story. Right. And also, so I'm two blocks from Georgia Tech's incubator over here. And so I'm surrounded by these like uber smart engineers and stuff. I also know that many of them, when they say engineer, somebody thinks they've got this picture of an engineer. It's like, oh, no, I'm a different kind of engineer. Mm -hmm. They've got something similar going on. Right. But there is, I think, a more cohesive story about what engineers do. Maybe I'm wrong about that but i think we need to be telling the story better and i think we also need to be talking a lot more you know maybe wrapping this back to the impact on society right if i'm in this neighborhood what's the impact of an architect on this neighborhood has there ever been an impact of an architect on this neighborhood what could an architect do in this neighborhood and like you said ryan that might be something to do with the ground it might have be something to do with site It might be something that's vertical. Who knows, right? It might be zoning, which probably we shouldn't use the term zoning. We should use something more understandable, more relatable. But I think it does come down to some personal responsibility for all of us. Scott's talking about the merit badge in Boy Scouts, another great example. It's gonna take everybody, you know, being able to tell their individual story. And you know, your path, right? How in the world, I, I love the ACE mentorship program because it's in, I know about it because it was in my kid's school. Neither one of them is even leaning towards architecture, which is perfectly fine. But I do know the impact that ACE has in their high school. And it's similar to what you've been talking about. We need people in the schools just opening kids' eyes to the fact that this exists and this is possible. Yeah. There's a lot of other questions there.
3: I think also, Ryan, when you start to talk about those different professions within the profession, these different channels of expertise, whether it's technical or management or marketing or business or architecture, just doing a good drawing set, building an awareness of that instead of like a traditional pyramid king of the hill, sort of got to make it to the top. I think that will also help broaden and strengthen the profession because it elevates different skill sets that different people bring from diverse backgrounds.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And again, why I think the degree is so helpful that it, like, you know, you could make a firm out of a cohort of students at a program, right? Like mm-hmm. they're diverse enough that you're going to have one that really rises as a designer, one that really does well technically, one that is really interested in the business side of things. And that's why I think that leaky pipeline's good. Let them out, let them go. Yeah. But it's also part of, you know, how the education Provides a really broad problem solving degree. Yeah. Agreed.
1: I tell my students that, you know, there's basically three things, three valuable things you learn in architecture school. And a couple of them you could argue are similar or the same. But one is critical thinking, one is design thinking. And uh, I mean, it all kind of feeds into what you're saying and problem solving. And it's you can do a lot of things. And that's cliche, but you can change the world. We need more of that whether it is in architecture or it's in politics or it's in whatever. Yeah, I get excited when students are thinking broader than traditional architecture because I know, right, these things that we complain about, you know, on the architecture side, think of the impact that, think of how that could change if someone with this, like you were saying, the Secretary of Housing, think about how that could change if someone with this education went out and was working it from the other side. Erica was talking about, being on the client side, she had different comments about that and the reality of the cost and, and the earning on the client side. We'll just have to have another one of these conversations to address some of those. But Ryan, I really appreciate you coming and talking about this pipeline problem, and we need to keep talking about it and working towards a solution to it. I can report, I've seen articles about this, and I know the impact of it at Ball State where I teach. Class sizes are getting larger. The last four classes that are in the school, the College of Architecture and Planning at Ball State right now are subsequently larger. So they are getting larger. Now, where those students go? Who knows? But uh, we are seeing, at least right now, an influx of students. That's only one school. I don't know if that's read articles that say it's beyond one school, but we'll see how that goes. Thank you for having me. It's been great. It's been great to have you here.
3: We've only scratched the surface. <laughs>
1: yeah. And yeah, we didn't even get that crazy.
3: Well, it's been good. Thanks, Ryan.
1: <laughs> but yeah, thanks for joining us. And, you know, I think we need to have you back because there are, even just on this one topic, there are different directions to take this conversation. Certainly, this is a big one, big ball of yarn to unravel here. So thanks for doing this. And to all of you that are out there in the audience, either live now or in some time shifted manner, thanks for listening. Let us know what you think about these conversations. I know right out of the bat we saw, or right out of the gate we saw people saying this is a great conversation. This is a conversation that needs to happen. So thank you for that. Share this wherever you're listening to it, watching it, whatever, right now. Share it so other people can get involved in this conversation. And we'll be back again next week with our next episode, next conversation of Context and Clarity Live. We're getting close now. We're October. We've probably got, what, three or four more weeks, I guess, left in this fall season of Context and Clarity Live. So thanks for being here. Again, thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Katie. Thanks to all of you. And we'll see you again next week. Thanks, everybody. Well, what do you think? Did you hear something in this conversation that you can use in your practice or even in your daily life? If the topic of this conversation is of particular interest to you, I invite you to go over to the Entree Architect Network. It's a place where entrepreneur architects just like you gather to have conversations on these topics and support each other in their practices and in their lives. You can find the Entree Architect Network at network.entreearchitect.com com. And if you were so inspired by this conversation that you'd like to watch the entire Context and Clarity Live episode, head on over to the Entree Architect YouTube channel. There's a playlist there that has all of the full Context and Clarity Live episodes. You can also have the Context and Clarity podcast delivered to you every week. Just give us a rating and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Your likes, your ratings, and your shares help us and help other entrepreneur architects like you to gather together and you can help us build the largest worldwide community of small firm architects. And if you love content like this, check out Gable Media. It's a multimedia network for people that care about the built environment and it's the home of context and clarity. With Gable's growing family of podcasts and video channels, I know that you'll find something there that interests you. You can learn more at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. So thanks for listening. I hope this conversation has inspired you to think about how you can build your business into something that allows you to practice the way that you want to practice. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of
2: telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this. I'm looking for projects.